0: This is Metal Mike, and in this episode of the 80s Glam Metal Cast, we talk to vocalist and guitarist from Silent Rage, Jesse Damon. We revisit their stellar album, Don't Touch Me There. We get an inside view of the inner workings of Simmons Records and what it was like working with Gene Simmons. And we talk his new solo album, Damon's Rage. Check it out. Jesse, welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How you doing tonight, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Yeah, no problem. So, hey, can you believe it was 31 years ago since Don't Touch Me There was released?
1: Gosh, you know, it does seem like a long time, but, you know, with all my great memories and people I run into still from that time period, a uh, lot of good friends that have stayed in touch through the years, as well as the band members themselves in Silent Rage, you know, it does seem like yesterday. Um, that music is still in my heart and in my veins, so I continue.
0: Nice. Well this thing is uh chock full of amazing songs. We got Running on Love, Tonight Your Mind, and of course, I call this like the evil brainwashing song, uh Rebel with a Cause because every time I listen to it, it's in my head for about a week. So
1: Hey, uh, you know, Rebel uh, became an anthem for us, and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a catchy song. You know, it's a fun song, and I think that's why we went with that song as our videos to uh, represent us back in that time. And, you know, all these songs were timely written, and, and you know, uh, there was three different writers in Silent Rage, and each had a little bit different take and a little different style. So with that in mind came you know a little bit different song textures uh throughout the album as well as you know uh, i was probably a little more melodic in my back uh background and ej came from kind of the metal world he loved heavy you know music loved alice cooper and kiss and uh black sabbath and you know i was into uh that too but i also loved the melodic side and and mark uh being born in the South from Georgia, you know, he, he had that kind of Southern vibe to him. So all those little textures were cool.
0: That's funny that you say that. Well, first, the first point I want to make is that it is kind of unusual that you had the three writers. Because if you look back at a lot of the 80s albums, a lot of them just let one guy, mostly the singer, a lot of the times, right, just pretty much write all the songs. So it's kind of cool that you had three main writers.
1: Yeah, it truly was a band. You know, it was a uh, collective effort. And we voted by everything by, you know, uh, by vote uh, as far as what we decided on, what we thought uh, was the best. You know, the cream always rises to the top when you're writing songs. And, uh, you know, but sometimes, you know, we're trying to split it up and, and give everybody a, a, a shake at, uh, you know, throwing a song or two in um, at that time, you know, and getting together with Gene and him involved with us, he was also looking at uh, outside songwriters, uh, you know, and outside songs, uh, as well as classic songs, you know, and here we did, we covered uh, Can't Get It Out of My Head, or mm-hmm. Can't Get It Out of My Head by Yellow, so there's a lot that goes behind it, but you know, you can't blame another band that might just have the main songwriter, and he might have started the band, he's the brainchild of the band, and happens to be the talent uh that songwrites so i know there's a lot of bands that you know went on to successful careers like that but for us it was the collective effort which uh made it to be more of a gang and a group you know we we really loved it and uh, it held us together strong
0: it's funny that you mentioned the different uh influences from the members because like I said, where I hear the eighties metal, I also can hear almost like elements of thirty eight special and Boston kinda creeping in. Who brought in those kind of elements?
1: Well I loved uh Boston, of course. Uh that that was that kind of melodic style. Uh you know, I had a little bit higher uh tenor voice than the other two guys, but uh and and so with that, uh I I loved singers like Lou Graham and uh, you know of course D. Perry, but I like, uh, you know, ball's ass singers, too. And I was a Coverdale fan and, you know, some of the metal singers. It was something that always came back home with us, that we had a silent rage sound. And even though we interjected our own influences, by doing that and working things out, it always came to be a sound of ours that that uh, came through. We started to develop that.
0: Another interesting thing is the album cover, which is uh, where many bands have either themselves all glammed up. They've got a girl on the cover or some metallic scene. We've got uh, who's who is it? It's somebody in the band on the cover, right? Their their bare chest. Yeah, that's EJ. Kirk. EJ. Okay. Well, oh, he's yeah. very in shape.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, you know EJ. I mean, he's the Italian stud of the band, <laughs> and uh, you know, I was uh, blessed by having you know that kind of, a you know, image and that kind of body. And, you know, he worked at it and he, uh, he weight lifted and was in shape and, uh, you know, it was active. So, uh, we all tried to be that way. You know, no one really wants to stare at overweight guys, you know, (laughs) trying to be rock stars or, you know, going out there and playing all night, trying to have a better image, you know, to, to appear to your audience. So,
0: was the idea to like appeal to the female audience with that kind of a cover or? well it was that. I mean, uh, you know, we had a lot of
1: buddies and uh it's funny how um, you know, we started off even though we had our influences and, and our playing style, we started off pretty melodic with that first album with uh, Shattered Hearts. Mm-hmm. And we had some more key you know, had keyboards involved and uh we had a lot of harmonies, we had some a cappella starting songs. And, it, and as we went through our, and when we got to Don't Touch Me There, the second effort, it got heavier, and it got a little more harder rock. And by the time we got to Still Alive, uh, the third album, it was getting even heavier. So we're kind of going back from what a lot of bands do. A lot of bands start, you know, yeah. heavy, heavy. And as they go along and they get a little bit better songwriters, they they tend to want to write more uh, commercial and come up with that big hit. So we kind of took a different route with that. So, uh, but uh, it was just something that naturally happened. It wasn't really preconceived. This is what we're gonna do on the first album. This is what we're gonna do, you know, on the second and then the third. It was just something we felt we wanted to do.
0: Now, Rebel was on Shattered Hearts, and then it made its way onto "Don't Touch Me There." was the belief that that was a strong song that didn't get a fair shake maybe the first time around or
1: I think uh, you know that was a song and a catalyst for Gene to really you know want to sign us and be involved with us. Uh, I think he felt strong about that song it was in his uh, mind it was a anthemic. Type song for the band, and so he thought, you know, why not make a couple changes and make it, you know, stand out on its own on this album, even though it's the same song and it's not too different, but it is a stronger version. So in a way, uh, you know, we took his uh, advice and we made a few changes, and we we actually started with the chorus instead of starting with the verse like we did in Shattered Hearts, and I think that. Right away, slammed you right in the face and and made you take notice. So it worked.
0: So let's talk about Mr. Simmons. What was it like working with Gene and being on the Simmons Records uh, label?
1: Well, it was at first, you know, a little apprehensive, not really knowing what to expect. You know, we all were Kiss fans, of course, and uh, you know, to have somebody step into your life and actually. Uh, there was a couple first phone calls that got him involved. He talked with EJ Kers because EJ was doing a lot of our business. So anybody who we referred to to get a hold of the band, they would call EJ. And so Gene called EJ. And this is after a time when we were looking for management and it was maybe three or four months. Uh, prior to that, uh, Shatter Hearts had come out. And so we were looking for management and we wrote to all sorts of managers throughout the industry. And one that got back to us was Glickman and Marks, uh, merchandise managers for Kiss. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Howard Marks is the guy who called us. So, you know, we had a good conversation and it was, uh, uh, you know, all of us on the phone, the whole band and him, conference phone call. And so he said, Well, uh, I really like this album and he goes, you know, I'm a merchandising manager for KISS but he goes, uh I think you guys have something here and I, I really like it. And uh I'd like to come out and fly out. I'm gonna coming out to LA, I'd like to come see a show. So we set up a showcase for him. He liked it. And uh after our showcase was done, we, he came backstage and he said, Well, I you know, I can't do anything for you except I'm going to pass this on to Gene because I know he's starting a new label and I think he'd like you guys. So we said, well, that's great. And we really appreciate it. But, you know, and after some small talk and he, he t- you know, talked a little bit about his workings with Kiss, but, and, you know, it gave us hope, but we weren't sure what was going to happen from that. And we figured, you know, maybe a few days from there, we were talking and saying to each other, well, we'll see if anything comes up. We won't hold our breath, but you know, it was, it, it's those kind of efforts that, you know, make you strive to, to go from, you know, really go for it. So, uh, and what happened from that was about three months later, Gene called EJ. And when he called him, he said, Hi, this is Gene Simmons, and I'd like to talk with somebody who's in charge of Silent Rage. And, uh, at that time, Mark and I, Mark Hawkins and I, we had phone machines, and we used to do, you know, voice characters of different people, you know, for our own little personal... You know, call Jesse back or call Mark back. Uh-huh. And, uh, BJ thought it was one of us trying to screw with him, <laughs> like an act like we were Gene. So he said, all right, who is this? Who is this? Jesse? Is this, is this Mark? Who, which one of you is it? And he goes, I assure you, this is Gene Simmons. And he goes, oh my God. He goes, I'm sorry, Gene. You know, so there was a little bit of that mix up, but it was, it was honest and, uh, you know, he told him that and so Gene laughed and, you know, it broke the ice. And the second call was a conference call with all of us there. And we talked about, he asked us what we wanted to do. And, uh, he also made some suggestions and said, well, I'm, I would like to, you know, meet you guys because I'm interested in signing you. And that came from the first conversation. So we were on cloud nine. And uh, we ended up going to his house and sitting, you know, out in his backyard by his pool, uh, beautiful house in Beverly Hills. And so stating all this, yeah, it is a little intimidating, you know, driving up into Bel Air or into, uh, you know, Beverly Hills. And you go up the long driveway and you go up to his house and, you, you know, we finally meet. But after sitting with him for a while, he really was a good guy and he has a way of telling stories, t- telling jokes, and making you feel good. You know, he he had that way about him. And so, besides talking a lot of things over, um, we kind of agreed after that first meeting, you know, we would love to work with you, we want to sign, and, and he said, yeah. Okay, so uh, the next few months was working that out, but also him calling us and making suggestions. And we were trying to sort out an album and sort out what we might need. And he wanted to hear any other songs we had that were demoed up. And so we got to work, you know, writing. And it was uh, one of the biggest kicks in our butt in our life.
0: (laughs) So he was pretty involved. Uh, He'd even produce some of the songs, right? He didn't produce the whole album, but he produced some of the songs, right? Yeah. What
1: happened was we we carried on and uh, we brought... Paul Sabu, uh, onto the team and Paul was producing it and we got about the seventh or eighth song into it. And there was a disagreement between Paul and, and Jean and, and Paul and Jean kind of had a strong opinion about wanting to do a certain direction and try something. And Paul said, yes, I just don't agree with it. You know, I don't think we should do that. And he says, well, would you mind if I stepped in and you know, and uh, and took the helm and tried a few things with the guys, and Paul said, no, no, go ahead, you know. and So in that respect, Paul was, you know, cool about it, and I know that the main bulk of those songs, you know, came about by Paul Sabu. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gave us our sound, and, and that's another story, but, uh, you know, we felt confident and got a lot of confidence before we even met Gene through Paul, you know, through uh, doing the whole shattered hearts album and also doing a lot of demos in the studio with him. So, but, uh, when we got to, I think there was about three or four songs that, uh, Gene got involved in. And, uh, I want to feel it, which was an outside song, uh, written by Joel and Turner, Bob held and Al Greenwood, uh, a combination of, uh, you know, Brit and, uh, Couple of New Yorker guys, uh, <laughs> Al Greenwood the keyboards from Foreigner and uh, Bob Held uh, uh, a great songwriter. So um, he brought us their demo and Joe Lynn was singing on it. And I said, God, I, I don't see why they don't put this out. <laughs> but I'm glad you got a hold of it because I really like it. So I, you know, I kind of copped his vibe on it. It's you know my take, but it's it's uh, I sang it close to the way Joe sang it, and uh, I think it really turned out good
0: that's
1: a great song um yeah and you know for some reason uh, gene loved that song too and he actually uh helped us with some backups on that so his voice is on there too and we had an outside uh engineer working with us pat reagan pat's a great engineer and a great guy good friend and uh we did another song and we started recording in pat reagan's home uh studio and then we moved back out to another uh facility most of it was recorded at foxfire studios in the city of san fernando you know gene came out there quite a bit and you know he as producer he would once in a while get behind the board and, and fly a mix but a lot of times he liked you know the uh engineer to do it and he would just verbally convey what he wanted and, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other song was, uh, touch me, uh, was another one. And I was, I had started off singing that, but Mark came in and, and just tried it one day and we all, we all felt that's a good, that's a good character fit for him. So he ended up singing that song.
0: Nice.
1: There was another song, uh, Bruce Kulick had co-wrote with Adam Mitchell, um, all night long and that ended up on the album and that was a favorite you know that that was a cool song and and that gave us a chance to you know work with Bruce and meet Bruce and um so, so many KISS connections through our uh you know through our time uh you know finding our drummer Brian James Fox who was in White Tiger right with, yeah I was gonna
0: uh, ask you about that <laughs> uh,
1: you know, that was a cool thing. Um, Mark St. John, you know, being in Kiss, and then uh, and I guess the first or second album that he did, and Brian was his drummer, and then we eventually were able to grab him. So another Kiss connection and uh, relation, you know, Kiss related. So going back to how, you know, it was to work with Gene, uh, Gene, you know, very intelligent guy, he always, shot from the hip of what he liked. You know, you could tell what he liked. He He's a guy that liked something that had power and hit you in the face and something that was right now, uh, something that was immediate. Um, So he would let you know, that was great. You know, he'd point it out and point right to you and say, do that again or do more of that, you know. Uh And I'm talking about when we were recording, you know, part or, into doing backups or doing, you know, lead vocal or that kind of thing. He also, you know, wanted to, I think, make sure when we were talking, we knew what we were saying and, and we were making sense. So sometimes you catch you on, he would ask you a question. You, you'd want to answer them as intelligently as possible. But sometimes the questions were, you know, intricate or different, you know. And so all of a sudden you're waiting there and then you start to, Answer him, and you stumble a couple things, and and he and he's like quoting what you just said, and you go, ah, that's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> so that's still part of the unfamiliar and a little bit intimidated, you know, at, early on. And he was trying to get us out of that, I think, you know. And he he said, look, um, and he would always tell a, a good joke, or you know, to, to get everybody lighthearted again. And uh, you know, I think anybody who's worked with a legend or worked with one of your favorite artists or that kind of thing you know there is a time where you have to make the adjustment of you know uh feeling like you you might be a little inferior to the point of you're a coworker, you know and you're actually get trying to get something done and that kind of thing so uh we were young you know and we were we were learning And, uh, and that, you know, by the time the album was done, we felt so good and felt, uh, you know, we were making other decisions. In fact, you mentioned 38 special when we got signed to our, uh, creative artist, uh, booking agency deal. We walked in and we were a little bit late in trying to find a tour for the Don't Touch Me There tour. And there was two left that they were offering, which one was. Black Sabbath to open up for Sabbath. And the other one was to go out and open up for 38 special. We didn't have to think long on that. We said, no, nah, uh, we'll take the Sabbath. Right. <laughs> so, um,
0: that probably fits better for you guys.
1: You know, not that I don't like 38 special and that probably would have been a great lesson and a great, you know, um, education going out with them guys too, because I like their music. But, um, you know, you're talking legendary, uh, Black Sabbath. So.
0: Yeah, so when you get, Don't get that opportunity, no man, you get to work with Kiss and Sabbath. That's crazy. Um, I know. So when you get to your, so you, you guys do your first big MTV video, um, and then was there any talk of doing any other singles? Because you guys just had the one video, right, for Rebel well, Without Cause.
1: There was talk of doing another one, and it it could have been either. Like it could have been Can't Get Her Out of My Head. Mm-hmm. That could have easily have been a second one. Uh, or Tonight, You're Mine, yeah, I can which picture was that uh, yeah. a very cool power ballad also. Um Either one would have been, I think, uh, interesting because especially if you've got a song like Can't Get it Out Of My Head and all these DJs across America, you know, playing a, a song that's a cover and they can AD it and still like to hear, you know, ELO's version and then back to back and then do ours or vice versa. That's an interesting you know, promo uh, for a new song to come out uh, and and a story to talk about. But also, um, Tonight Your Mind was, you know, ours, and it was it was a strong ballad. But we had a lot of ballads on
0: that. Were the funds not there to do it, or what, what happened? Because a lot of bands, you know, well, certain labels had about, sometimes they had three videos, you know, they started off with a fast track, then the power ballad, you know what I mean?
1: Well, one thing happened was the... RCA had a shakeup within uh, the inner workings of, you know, the the president and the vice president and some of the underling A and R, and who came in as a new person to set things straight and and to see what what they were going to keep on the roster and uh, you know when you you know with Gene Simmons we we went to his house as far as Simmons records we didn't go to an office he didn't own a you know, a state of the art building facility, you know, with everything there, we went and, you know, it was, it was a lot more personal, uh, personable. And, um, but when we went to the distribution, which was major label, it was going down to RCA down in Hollywood. And of course, when we flew to, uh, New York, we went and met everybody there in the, in the uh, east coast side when you're having that major label distribution involved you know you there's a lot of it's like a spider web out through the nation you know how many people you touch and when you go out on on the road they have representatives everywhere you play and they come to your shows and, and that's what happened with us so uh when they went and had that shake up and lost some people, they started to look at numbers for sales and, you know, they just thought they weren't gonna hang on to the deal with Gene with uh with uh RCA being the distribution for his label. We didn't hit a home run and we didn't get that chance to do a second single. Mm-hmm. Unlike if it would have been a little earlier, like uh House of Lords came out with their release in 1988. Yep. So they yep. had a chance to do a couple, you know, two or three deep, I think. Mm-hmm. I can't remember all their singles. I know they did a cover themselves. I love that cover. So, what we decided to do is Gene's decided to uh, focus on getting new distribution. And, you know, he went straight to, I believe it was uh, Tony Iovine at Interscope. And he was trying to get Interscope to, uh, to rep him. For, for Simmons Records and, and be the dis- new distribution, and we had a conference call with him and you know, and talked with him a while, and we kinda got the bad news about you know grunge coming in.
0: Right, right. And uh, uh,
1: so the timing of it was not in our favor, mm-hmm. but the, the ability and what we had to offer and what Gene saw in us was still there and was, the reason why we got that far so far. So, um, he thought, uh, I'm going to, tr- let's try and do a new album and let's get a new, you know, a, I'm still trying to get a new uh, distribution and I'm going to put you back in the studio and we're going to, you know, make this one even bigger. So here we are in 1990 going back in the studio and going through a lot of different, Uh, and talking with a lot of different artists who wanted to produce us. After talking with them and and getting their ideas, Gene kind of still didn't really have his heart set. And uh, so he, he, I guess he had a plan in the back of his mind. He got a hold of Bob Ezrin. And you know, Bob's done it all. And he's, you know, did so many albums and you know, worked with Pink Floyd, worked with Alice and worked with Kiss. So for us to grab him, and he says, you know, I think it's gonna work out with Bob. Let's let's do it with him. So we had our meeting with him, and, and Bob was behind it. And said, yeah, let's do it. So he came to a lot of production, pre-production uh, uh, rehearsals at our rehearsal facility. And uh, we started to shape up a new album, and, and we had half an album re- recorded, and it was just slamming, and we were having such a great time. And so we started, you know, Gene said, let's get this in right now and let's go and re- uh, record what we have. So we went into Cornerstone recorders and Chatsworth in 1990. And uh he not only had Bob Ezrin on as the pr- producer, but he had as a co-producer and engineer, Kevin Beamish. And Kevin was, you know, a red hot, you know, did... Uh, you know, Ariel Speedwagon and Y and T and you know, so here we got a couple hot producers and we really felt good about the second album. You know, at the same time, like I said about timing, there was, I think, possibly a little bit of a struggle and a little bit of push for Gene to get back into, you know, thinking about Kiss and uh, you know, Paul was probably tugging and pulling saying, you know, I know what you're trying to do here with that, but I need you and you know, Kiss needs to move on. So um, it, it made it more difficult for Gene to focus on both careers. Eventually that it died. And, uh, and I guess he did not get, you know, the, uh, w- with the way of the industry and, and a grunge coming in and we kind of missed our envelope or window of time. Um we sat on those songs for a while. You know, what came from that was, you know, getting to know Gene and doing a lot of things for him. We started to uh work with him and demoing songs for him that he was writing for Kiss for the next album, which was going to be Revenge. Right. And uh from that he also started to ask, you know. He asked me, "Would you be interested in co-writing?" And I said, "Yeah, absolutely." So I started going over there, and we wrote, you know, a couple songs. And we ended up writing about six songs uh, throughout the course of a year or two, you know. And I landed one on "Revenge," which was "Thou Shalt Not." So
0: killer tune. Um,
1: got and other opportunities that happened down the road from being involved with that.
0: Nice. Now, a couple questions. So, if you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, If you could go back in time and let's say it was Simmons Records on the table or Atlantic Records, would you still do the Simmons route or would you have tried with a different label?
1: Well, it's hard to say that. Uh, it, it's hard to just jump in and say uh, I knew nobody from Atlantic. So, or any other I knew label. I was a yeah. strong label. Yeah. It would really depend on, you know, talking with the other person who was offering a deal and, and getting the vibe because you really have to go with a gut instinct. Uh, you believe in yourself and you, you want to hold close to the vest what you have to, that's all you have. That's your ammunition, which is your, your band identity and the songs and. You know, we worked hard up until that point, you know, to get to where we were, you know, slept, slipping through all of the, uh, the heyday at the Sunset Strip in Hollywood and then, you know, branching out and playing regionally and, and just really going after it and doing a lot of, um, VIP showcases for labels. We did a lot of that before we met Gene, you know, and, and trying to, you know, get, get there on our own, but, uh, we kept at it and, you know, we kind of got in through a back door. Like I said, you know, when you're making your decisions, it's a gut instinct. And, you know, we, we would talk amongst the band and no one person made the decision. We all had to come up with the decision together. And so, um, you know, I think my only regret is that we didn't try to get signed a little earlier than 87 for our first album, but mm-hmm. who would have had the first album out by 85 or six? we might have been able to make and squeak in and got, you know, a little further along, might have uh, gotten to the second single or third single of a Don't Touch Me, their album, if that came out in 87 or 88. And, uh, and just would have catapulted us further. So
0: yeah, the only reason I asked that... That's unfortunate. That, yeah, the only reason I asked that, and, and because what a lot of people I talk to, they'll say these kind of situations where, well, man, if we would have did this, then we would have, you know, and you never really know. So I guess what I'm getting at is, in your opinion, no regrets, it was the right move, but it was just bad timing. Is that is that the final answer? Yeah. Okay, all right, cool. That's
1: oh, yeah, I'm trying to get. That, that's definitely the final answer, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think, you know, in our hearts, we made the right decisions, but um you know like i said with the pulse of the industry changing to grunge you know they it was a different thing so but as you know right now i'm still writing and i'm still putting out albums and i'm you know a lot of my stuff has grown and but there's still an inbred sound of 80s in my style and uh you know i enjoy it it's it's who i it's where I came from, you know, it's uh, what I did the best, and and so I'm I'm gonna hang on to that and keep it. I don't really want to become something completely different unless it's a different uh, genre, which I have done an album in kind of a blues, uh, Southern Americana sound, but uh, I still had rock and roll involved in it, so.
0: Yeah, man, I was going to say, you still have the knack for writing the catchy uh, song that gets stuck in your head because Love Gone Wild, that's been stuck in my head because I've been listening to uh, Damon's Rage. Why don't you tell everybody about that album?
1: Okay, well, Damon's Rage uh, was a follow-up. Actually, what happened in 2013, I came out with a a new album called Temptation in the Garden of Eve, and that was one of my better albums to date. You know, that that really... uh, I kinda came back full circle and started writing in the old Silent Rage, uh, vibe. And it did well, that album did well, and I think people enjoyed it, and I had, you know, a couple good, uh, players on it. I had Paul Sabu play bass on it, and I had, uh, Pete Newdick from the UK on drums, and, uh, Eric Ranu on keyboards, and myself. And so it went over well, it was a band kinda thing. And, uh, good songs. I I felt I took my time and, and, uh, you know, Paul Sabu has been my producer all along through my solo career. And so, you know, he's given me that, uh, that same sound, you know, which is, uh, was captured in, you know, one of my best albums that I've, uh, recorded, which was don't touch me there. So it's, you know, the same silent rage singer, you know, trying to, to just do new material. Although as a, uh, as a solo artist, you want to, you know, try new things and you want to try to uh, not be, you know, the same every time you come out. But there has to be some kind of a common thread. And so my common thread is my voice and my guitar playing and the stylistic of songwriting. Thank God for that. Uh, in 2016, I decided to take a, a left turn and I did the, the blues, uh, blues rock. Southern album called Southern Highway. And I did that because I put together a fun band and we started to play out just for fun. And I started to write some for that band. And I thought, gosh, this is, this stuff's kind of fun. I think I have enough material where we, I'm going to go in and record it. So I did. And a lot of people liked it, liked that style. But, uh, I still have, you know, some of the people that wanted to hear rock and roll, you know, didn't take a liking to it. Mm-hmm. So, they got back and uh, uh you know some of the uh, press some uh fan base you know just people who are involved with my my professional career asked me are you going to do another rock album i said yeah i have been songwriting and i plan to do one so it took a couple of years to get to it and uh by 2019 i was finished and i had uh decided not to go the same route of having outside guys play on it. I, I decided Paul and I were going to try to do this on our own because most of the other albums I have had outside help, outside session guys. Uh, and I said, what do you think about us just trying to do it? And and he said, yeah, let's do it. And so it was the two of us. Uh There was two songs that he co-wrote with me, which one was Love Gone Wild and the other was Wildest Dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was the second song and the, the last song, the twelfth song. And uh, I felt strong about this album. There's a couple songs like "Wildest Dreams" happened to come from a song I wrote for the 2020 Olympics that was supposed to go happen this year in Japan. Although that didn't happen, uh, this song was up for the running for uh, you know some promotional ads and for radio as well as television in, in Japan. So I felt good about this song and I said, yes, I'm going to record it and, uh, and and put it on the album. And, uh, you know, some of the other ones I really felt strong. I also had an, an intention of giving a nod to the stylistic writing that I learned how to write my songs from some of the greats, um, you know, from the seventies, like Ted Nugent, Deep Purple, great bands that I loved and listened to. And, you know, learn their chops, but also listen to their song structure and, and, and figured it out and thought, you know, this is how you write great songs. And, uh, and then you have to find your own pathway of what you want to use and how you want to do things. So, uh, that's what I did for this new album, you know, and, you know, had some nuance and had some, uh, some, like I said, nods that I would give, uh, to, to the players of yesteryear, you know the legends from the seventies were from what I grew up, you know, listening to, and the late sixties too. I mean, I listened to Hendrix and you know Cream and all that too. But um, mainly, you know, I was learning my chops through seventy four to seventy eight or nine, you know, and then you know was out playing by then and playing clubs seventy nine, eighty, you know, playing Hollywood, early eighties to wrap it up as far as uh, Damon's Rage, I had to come up with a title and the last song I wrote was Damon's Rage. And I thought to myself, well, I want to keep this the push on this album and I want to keep it upbeat. So I'm gonna write a song and I knew that there was a lot of movies over the last 10 years about superhero. So I tried coming up with a storyline that I was kind of the superhero within the, the character and that I was going around trying to foil evil. And, uh, you know, when I took my, my six string shield around and I played my music, it would be, bring people out of their doldrums and out of the evil that they might be getting involved in and come listen to my music and feel better. And so that was my take on that song, you know, and the, uh, the storyline in
0: it. That's a cool concept. And, That's
1: cool. Yeah, it was, and it you know, and twofold. I mean, if it's a superhero style sound, it's almost like a uh, that kind of uh, a chase type of uh, vibe to that. You know, that sound of that song. So, you know, I, I've gotten a couple nibbles from you know film and stuff. So, cool. I was on the right track at least. And uh and then other people have asked me, you know, does it have anything to do with you know silent rage and and, and you know Damon's rage is this your version oh
0: yeah <laughs> well in
1: a, in a way it is you know, but uh, uh that's just kind of without saying you know uh, uh I wasn't trying to be a silent rage too, and I'm calling it Damon's rage. It just happens to be that's that title was a strong title for that song. Happens to be my take on it, so it's Damon's Rage.
0: So, speaking of Silent Rage, you, you think you guys will ever do anything again?
1: I'm hoping to, you know, I, uh, I'm always pushing. I'm If I'm a, a catalyst for, you know, that band, it's, it's to continue on and to, you know, I, I've already got songs that I've started writing, you know, for a follow-up or for uh, any new material, what we might decide to do is, is come out and just, uh, you know, do one song at a time, maybe even do some single releases, coincide with maybe a, a tour or with a, uh, some, uh, you know, a handful of festivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been offered some, but then, you know, I was just about to, you know, take on some festivals and, and then get us back get Silent Rage back out for a few too, you know, when the pandemic hit. So yeah. try and get back on. Track with that, but I have been in contact with the guys and I've told them my feelings, and I have done some sessions of writing with uh, Mark Hawkins. I haven't wrote with DJ yet, but uh, we'll just have to see. I'm hoping, you know, we can do something, and if and if we do it, um, I think it would be great. Well,
0: what do you want to say to your fans uh, in closing?
1: I'd like to say thank you so much for you know the loyalty and for. Being involved and you know getting a hold of me and telling me your stories and letting me know you know what my music has been and uh, how you felt about my music and how it changed you know some of your lives and I'm so happy that that was the case. Um, I think for an artist that's that's the greatest compliment is you know for people to call you or people to email or let you know their story and why why or how your songs move them so uh, if i you know i continue to you know carry on and i want to be able to you know come out with new songs and new cds and and just keep it going awesome
0: thank you well that was a great interview with jesse there's a lot more cool interviews on the way so please subscribe rock on